Welcome to GI Insights. I'm your host, Dr. Neil Nandi. On this episode, we'll be reviewing with Dr. Nicholas Shaheen what is the role of the gastroenterologist in serving patients who've already received post-ablative therapy for their Barrett's esophagus with dysplasia. Dr. Nicholas Shaheen is a dual-trained clinician gastroenterologist and epidemiologist who has helped conduct some of the nation's largest clinical and translational research studies in the field of Barrett's esophagus. Notably, he was the primary investigator of one of the largest multi-center studies of RFA, radiofrequency ablation, in Barrett's esophagus, and has led studies understanding the application of other ablative therapies such as cryotherapy too. In addition, Nick is the chief of GI and hepatology at UNC Chapel Hill and wears many other professional hats as teacher and mentor to many. Nick, welcome to GI Insights. It's a pleasure to be here, Neil. Absolutely. You know, you've been a pioneer in understanding the management and shaping the management of Barrett's. Indeed, there have been many iterations of the guidelines through the years, and your research has played a key role. One of the aspects has been the application of ablative therapies to dysplastic Barrett's. Now, not all that is Barrett's should be ablated. I'm hoping you can give a brief summary of how we approach uh, Barrett's esophagus um, with low-grade versus high-grade dysplasia before we talk about the role of ablative therapy. Happy to. So when we think about ablation, one thing we want to make sure is that the cure isn't worse than the disease. By that, I mean there are some risks and clearly some costs inherent in doing ablative therapies, and we really want to reserve those for folks that we feel relatively comfortable are truly going to benefit. So how do you apply that to Barrett's? Well, this is what we know. We know that the risk of progression to adenocarcinoma of the esophagus in non-dysplastic Barrett's is quite low, somewhere in the neighborhood of three per every thousand patients followed for a year. On the other hand, when you take that first step to low-grade dysplasia, you're talking about a risk that's at least double, if not more. And of course, the high-grade dysplasia, you're talking about quite a higher risk, somewhere on the neighborhood of 6 to 7%, but some reports as high as 20% or even more rates of progression in that situation. So how do we think about this? Well, clearly in the position of high-grade dysplasia, those patients are at very high risk of progression. The question there is not, are you going to ablate or not? The question is, are you going to ablate or when we started doing this, are you going to take them to surgery? So ablation was a godsend for those folks because the vast majority of them can hold on to their esophagus. Low-grade dysplasia is quite a bit more interesting. There, the risks are lower but there, we do have level one evidence that you can markedly decrease the risk of progression with ablation. There was a very nice study called the SURF study that was done that showed that in the Netherlands. And we think that the risk there is high enough in many patients to make ablation a valuable intervention, although I will freely admit that that is still in question. Finally, and I think this is what's really important for your listeners, the many, many patients with non-dysplastic Barrett's, many of whom will come to their doctors and say, I've heard about this ablation. I want to get rid of my Barrett's. You've already told me it's precancerous. Why won't you get rid of it? Well, in that situation, what I like to tell folks is that the risk of a complication here is somewhere between 6 and 9% with ablation, the most common one being obviously stricture. However, we have seen severe bleeding. We have seen and often see um, hospitalization for pain control. And 
we can see perforation, although that's a very rare side effect. So there are some real side effects with this treatment. For that reason, I think that that's a situation where the risks of the treatment weigh, may well outweigh the benefit. And that's why essentially all societal guidelines do not recommend ablation of non-dysplastic barracks. So I know that with certain lesions, you know, we may pursue uh, referral to a tertiary care center for um, endoscopic treatment and, and, and ha- utilize a tertiary high volume center's expertise in deciding when to do EMR um, or local resection, certainly to avoid esophagectomy. But I guess one key thing is, uh, what, how do we decide or how do you decide what type of ablative therapy to follow thereafter? Uh, RFA has really changed the face of this. Um, and I hear a lot about cryoablation and uh, that evolving technology. How do you decide which one a patient will be best suited for? Sure. So the only ablative therapy with level one evidence at preventing progression to cancer is radiofrequency ablation. That's why it appears in the primary position in all the societal guidelines. Having said that, I do think that there are times when cryotherapy may be the preferred therapy. And let me give you a couple of examples. To get effective radiofrequency ablation, the device has to have tight apposition to the tissue. You really have to be able to push hard on the tissue to get that good flow of energy that's going to cause the desiccation of the mucosa. Sometimes if a patient has a big hiatal hernia, you push on them with a radiofrequency ablation catheter and the tissue just moves away from you. Or perhaps even because of the anatomy, you can't get good apposition at all. Well, in such a situation, you're not going to do very well with radiofrequency ablation. And in fact, a spray technology, perhaps like spray liquid nitrogen cryotherapy, may well be preferred. And in fact, that's what we'll oftentimes do. Other times when we, can, when we consider alternative therapies are situations when perhaps I've gone through a couple or three rounds of radiofrequency ablation, and I'm just not getting the response that I'm looking for, perhaps I've only gotten 30 or 40% reversion to neosquamous epithelium. Well, that's a situation where I want to think about perhaps changing my modality in the thought that some patients may be more susceptible to one kind of ablation than others. So that's a very common thing that, that we do as well. For those just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Neil Nandi, and I've been speaking with Dr. Nicholas Shaheen on the role of RFA in treating and ablating dysplastic areas of Barrett's esophagus. Now, Nick, I want to switch modes now. Once the tertiary care center has actually performed ablative therapy and uh, requires, now the patient requires coming back for surveillance after all the treatment has been performed, What should the referring gastroenterologist do? What are the guidelines or surveillance intervals that should be expected? And what is the biopsy practice pattern that we should follow? That's a great question, Neil. And I think it's increasingly important for the general GI practitioner to know about this because of the large numbers of patients that have now undergone these therapies, many of whom are returning to the practices from once they came to get their surveillance. So a couple things your listeners need to know. Number one, their patients are never off the hook. By that, I mean we hoped that after successful ablation, there might come a time when the risk of progression would be so low that we could liberate patients from surveillance. Now that we're well into the surveillance era, uh, the ablation era, it's clear that surveillance ongoing is going to be necessary. 
that we are getting even far out rates of recurrence about 8% per year. So high enough that we can't really leave these patients alone. So what are the right intervals? Well, the, what we suggested based on modeling studies from a large registry of 5,500 patients and looking at when patients recur is that the surveillance interval should be based on the baseline grade of dysplasia for which you ablated the patient. By that, I mean, it appears that patients who had high-grade dysplasia or an early cancer are at higher risk for recurrence than those with low-grade dysplasia. So what's the implication of that? That means that the patients who I ablated for high-grade or cancer are going to get more frequent surveillance than those with low-grade. The most recent guidelines, which were published in the AGA and in, in gastro as part of a clinical practice update, suggest that if a patient had high-grade dysplasia, their surveillance should be at three months after complete eradication of intestinal metaplasia, six months after eradication of intestinal metaplasia, one year after, and then annually following. So in other words, in that first year, we're gonna do a little more surveillance at three and six months to make sure that we've got that patient clear, and then they're gonna get it once a year. For low grade, the surveillance is attenuated. It's at six months, it's at one year, and then it's every two years after that. So it's a less aggressive schedule because we find both the rate of recurrence as well as what they recur with to be much less severe than the patients with high grade or with cancer. So that answers the surveillance intervals, but your second question, which is really important, is what do I do when I'm down there? So I've got a patient, they've come back to see me, I'm doing surveillance, they look fine. Am I done? No, you're not done. You're going to take some biopsies. Where are you going to take the biopsies from? Well, you're going to take biopsies from four quadrants in the cardia, so essentially the top of the gastric folds, but clearly on the columnar side. Why do we do that? Because 50% of the recurrence of dysplasia actually occurs in the cardia. Dysplasia does not respect the GE junction or the Z line, and we find dysplasia commonly after otherwise successful ablation in the cardia, so we're checking for that. If you are going to find dysplasia or recurrent Barrett's in what appears to be squamous epithelium in the distal esophagus, it almost always occurs in the bottom two centimeters. So our current practice is to take eight biopsies in the bottom two centimeters of squamous epithelium and four more in the high cardia. If those are all normal, then you can feel pretty comfortable that that patient is fine till their next surveillance. That's fantastic that you just outlined that so simplistically and the rationale why, because I think that's the role of the referring GI to understand that their role is very critical in the surveillance uh, outcomes uh, of these patients. You've really given us some clear insights into practical surveillance guidelines, practical biopsy techniques post endoscopic eradication and really beautifully reviewed when to use RFA and why. Before we close, are there any last uh, parting take-home points you want to share with our listeners? Yeah. Number one, patients want to be done with us, and patients are sick of their doctors. And emphasizing when you get one of these folks back that, you know, gosh, as much as I'd like to leave you alone, you really are 
going to need the surveillance because those are fairly substantial risks that I mentioned to you earlier about recurrence of disease. So I think really emphasizing that this is a lifelong challenge that the doc and the patient are going to take on together is really important. And then the second thing I'll say is that it's so important to have good communication between the center and the referring doc. If you do find recurrent Barrett's, don't sit on it. These people are not at the same risk as, as naive Barrett's, um, and they should come back to the center or to a large ablation uh, facility to somebody that's doing a lot of this so they'll get really great outcomes. We know that those outcomes are volume dependent. They certainly can be had in private practices as long as people have adequate volume to really be good at this, but you don't want to be a low-volume center for ablation. You heard it right here, folks. Barrett's Clinical Pearls, straight from Dr. Nicholas Shaheen. Nick, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your GI insights with our greater GI community. Pleasure to be here, Neil. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. For ReachMD, I'm Dr. Neil Nandi. To access this episode and others from GI Insights, please visit reachmd.com slash GI Insights, where you can be part of the knowledge. As always, thanks for listening.